0: take your bibles we'll turn to exodus chapter 17 this morning i want to thank you for the time off i want to thank the elders for providing that for me i want to thank josh for preaching for me in my absence and all the others who do things each week to make sure that we have worship at christ pres i was really appreciative of the time off my family and i both found a lot of rest in it And so, today we return to our study in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 17. You might remember that God's people came to a place called Rephidim for rest. Rephidim means rest. And when they got there, they had a little trouble resting. They couldn't find water, and they began to quarrel and test the Lord. And God made it very clear, your sins deserve a trial, and you remember that the lord put himself on the rock and the rock was struck god's own staff of judgment struck himself in a declaration that someone would suffer for sins and the one who suffers is god 1 corinthians chapter 10 tells us that that rock was christ to this point all of the enemies that they have faced have come from within today, for the first time in our study, they come to an enemy that is from the outside, and so they must fight. Truthfully, if you remember the story, the timing feels a little precarious. It is concerning. But the message of the text is that God is present in each and every battle that God's people face. And so we read, At chapter 17, beginning at verse 8, and we remember that all of God's Word is His Word. It is true, and we believe it, and so we will surrender to it. Here's God's Word. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, "'Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand,' So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up, on, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, we ask that you would grant to us the ministry of your spirit, that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. I pray again that you would be willing to to use me, a, a sinful, crooked, bent stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We just pray for the help of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that this would be the clearest way that I can explain the reason that I no longer play golf. Most of us avoid activities that accentuate our weaknesses. And there is nothing on earth that more perfectly accentuates my weakness than the golf club. That golf swing accentuates my inability to consistently do anything that is a repeated graceful motion. The attention that's required to set and fix a bad shot, the angle of the club, tweaking the grip, that silly left arm that somehow has to stay straight, all of this accentuates my struggle with details. And then, of course, there's the golf balls in the woods, in the water, in high grass. And that, of course, accentuates my lack of patience. I no longer own golf clubs. Most of us avoid activities that accentuate our weaknesses. And I'm convinced that this happens in many ways spiritually as well. You've been working hard, to try to control your temper, you fly off the handle. Do you feel a sense of victory or defeat? You've been praying about your fears. You've been trying to trust the Lord more, and all you do is find yourself faithless and fearful. You feel a sense of victory or defeat? When you focus all your human strength on on battling one or two really strong besetting sins for months and for years only to pause and assess yourself, I've made no progress. I wonder if you feel in those moments a sense of victory or defeat. And if you evaluate spiritual battles through this lens of human strength, you and I will almost always become crushed under the weight of our failure. And since, of course, most of us avoid activities that accentuate our weakness, I suspect you know what it feels like to be tempted to want to give up or just to ignore the spiritual battle altogether. But what if the spiritual battle itself is intended by God to highlight your weakness in order to accentuate the power of God? Verses 8 through 16 provide a completely counterintuitive perspective. And that is, do not be surprised when your battle against the flesh accentuates your weakness. Because victory in spiritual battles comes not in human strength, but through the power of God. And so we're going to summarize our text under three C's this morning. The the context, the comparisons, and then finally the cross. And so we start with the context. This is the meaning of the history There's a brief explanation of Amalek, which I think is necessary in order to understand why this physical battle has been understood in a spiritual way, with deep spiritual significance. Who is Amalek? These are the descendants which come from Esau, distant cousins of the Hebrew people. You remember that both of these nations would have come from Abraham and Isaac, but Amalek descends from Isaac's older brother Esau. Whereas the Hebrew people descend from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel after he wrestles with God at Exodus, I mean, excuse me, at Genesis 32. And to know the history is to understand the meaning. And so we acknowledge that even if this isn't immediately obvious to us sitting in chairs in the Alumni Center at Auburn University in 2022, this message was really obvious to them. The context give you, gives you history's meaning, and here's, here's what it is. God's people always face enemies from outside and also from within. What else do we know about Amalek? Well, if you fast forward in the Bible 40 years, you get to Deuteronomy, where Moses is recounting these events in chapter 25, verse 17 and 18, and he explains it like this. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt." when you were weary and worn out and they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, they had no fear of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, when you encounter God's instruction to make war and blot out a nation on the face of the earth, it is because of their posture towards God. It is not because the Lord himself cares about the race itself, he cares most significantly about about their posture towards God and about their posture towards his people. So when Moses summarizes it by saying they have no fear of God, he's summarizing the kind of people who would have heard very clearly about the Red Sea deliverance. They would have heard about Yahweh's great power over Pharaoh, that this slave nation has somehow broken free. They would have heard That this God has said, I'm making a covenant relationship with these people. But for some reason it didn't matter. These are nomadic bullies who move around and and strike at the weakest of those who are in the desert. You imagine the mother who's hauling twins across the desert. You imagine the elderly as they try to keep up with other family members. Those of the tribe of Amalek come from behind and they begin to pick off and grab those who are lagging behind. It's really how you feel when you hear about someone like Eric Rudolph who attacks people or any other terrorist and then you figure out they're hiding in a cave. They've destroyed women and children and then they're hiding an enemy from outside. You face enemies on the outside too, don't you? At a high level, you know what it feels like to face political and, and social movements that you recognize seek to, say, to, seek to shake the very foundation of the church that would seek to strike at the very hope of the gospel that you have. Institutions that apparently have no fear of God whatsoever. The truth is to walk with Christ in this world is to face genuine opposition, opposition which is at times right in your face. Your boss who subtly mocks your faith. Your co-workers or your fellow students who hold you at arm's length as if you are an alien because you will not join them tearing down others or because they notice that you're trying to guard your tongue or they notice that you're overly kind. And they say, that's annoying. You also face another kind of fire that feels at least in part like it should be friendly. Those cultural Christians around you, they love these cute little Jesus slogans and they put them all over their social media page. And then they mock you for taking Christianity so seriously. Or your family members who tell you to just dial it back a little bit. They don't like the fact That you believe that the Bible is true, that it really does impact all of your life. There are very real outright assaults that come from outside, directed towards God's people. And those are the ones that seem, don't they, like the biggest threat to your well-being. I think that perhaps we notice those more acutely because they bother us more. But since the time that salvation was given to these former slaves, this is the first time that they've actually faced opposition from outside. To this point, the real enemy has always come from within. I came to a little camp called Rest, Rephidim, and at that camp there was no spring of fresh water, but there was another kind of spring. Bubbling up from within their hearts, inside of them, was quarreling and complaint and testing and putting God on trial. At Rephidim, the first and biggest problem that they faced was within. The same is true if you back up to chapter 16, the wilderness of Sin. Overflowing from the depths of their heart, there is a a posture of grumbling. I wish we would have just died in Egypt. Do you remember how good things were there? This God can't be trusted. Even as they're out there picking up quail and picking up manna, some of them tried to store it up as if, well, God could maybe be good today, but we can't trust Him to be good tomorrow and be faithful to us as hungry children. Before that, chapter 15, you remember sitting on the Red Sea, they had to move to this place called Mara, where the water was bitter. And that bitter water was really a perfect reflection of the bitterness of their hearts. Context is helpful here. To this point, there's really been three times as much threat that came from inside as outside. I suspect, if I'm honest, the numbers in my own life are much larger than that, maybe in yours as well. I wonder if you would think about the very temptation just to, to generally fear? The very temptation to not trust the Lord? Or would you consider the temptation that flows out from your heart towards bitterness and envy? Would you consider the temptation to sexual immorality or addiction or idols that you serve as if those things were first place in your life? I wonder if you would take a look at your own self-righteous pride Or your presumption on the motives of everyone else. You just presume that they meant to hurt you because that's the kind of people they are. If only everybody was as sweet as you or me. Parents, I wonder if the biggest threat towards your children, (laughs) is it really that someone else's children are going to corrupt your own? Or that that which bubbles from your own heart might be the very substance of what teaches your children to sin, do they really need you to teach them? Or is it possible that they have sin of their own, which bubbles forth from their own hearts? Parents, is your biggest danger that your children will be kidnapped? Or is it that you will check out mentally and spiritually and emotionally that when it comes to disciplining and love and tenderness and care, you'll just default to laziness? And refuse to say the hard thing or watch them. This battle with Amalek has been understood for centuries as a a battle against the flesh. You see, these are, of course, the descendants of Esau. Who's Esau? He's the one who traded that which was temporal for that which was eternal who, because his belly was hungry, forfeited the lasting significance of God, his God-given place. And the Bible goes on to tell us the rest of Esau's story, that he lived his life as a a fleshly man, as a man who pursued and engaged in sexual immorality, as a man whose descendants live preying on the weak, as those who constantly pursued selfish gain. And so here's a battle on on an actual field, where people who have been saved by God's grace are forced to wage war against those who live by the flesh. And if you know Christ, you know that that's the battle in your own heart, isn't it? It's not a field in a desert in the Sinai Peninsula. There's an actual battle in here for me, for many, the enemy outside is the enemy that scares you the most. And so you take up the tools of the world to fight it. You take up slander and malice and cunning or just fear. But the reality is that the flesh from within is the enemy that presents at least, I'd say, three times more threat. The Bible says your own flesh is the biggest problem. And you will never claim victory over your flesh in human strength alone you'll you'll never gain victory by trying harder or endeavoring to do better as if God once saved you in the past but then he said okay here's a long journey in the wilderness in this life you're simply left to to just try and not lose the salvation that I gave you is that really what this was about there's a better way you are summoned to fight the flesh But you are summoned to fight the flesh and the power of God. Victory in spiritual battles comes not in human strength but through the power of God. So we have the context. And now we'll move to examine the comparisons. Up to this point, you notice, don't you, that God's people have been completely passive. Here's what I mean. Every plague has been performed by God. As God judges Pharaoh and his people, the Hebrews watched. And then they come to the Red Sea. And to ensure that they understand that salvation is God's work, it was Exodus 14, 14, the Lord said, I'll fight for you. All you have to do is watch and be silent. At Mora, they simply complain. And God turns, bitter water sweet. In the wilderness of Sin, they, they simply complain. And God gives them daily manna. At Rephidim, they simply complain. And God pours forth water from the rock. It would be possible, wouldn't it? If you were in their shoes to presume, quite wrongly, that God is going to do everything from here forward to sanctify us, as if the whole thing is just a passive process. It's the same nerve in your own brain that makes you think that you don't really have to be an active part of your own growth and grace or even fight in spiritual battles against sin, oh, I'll just I'll just let go and let God. Or God will get me where I need to go. I'll eventually grow into what he wants me to be. I first do need to sow a few wild oats just to kind of get those out of the way. I'll be very active in that pursuit, but not necessarily in the other. Salvation is always and only God's work. God never said, hey, work hard and get yourself out of slavery and bondage. He said, I'll save you. I'll save you, watch and see. And then after he saved them, he didn't say, now go hang out at those palm trees at Elim under those 12 big palm trees with all of those uh, beautiful ponds of fresh water. No, he said, get up and walk. And now he says fight. Look at verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. You see, the, the message is, is that God is the one who will determine the outcome of the fight. But he does use Means. In the hands of his own people to win the battle. Verse 13 tells us that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And you need to remember that these are people who have spent the last 400 years not with swords in their hands, but with implements of work for slavery and building those things which sustained the Egyptian empire. The text is teaching us that in our own life, there is going to be actual ground-level fighting or striving. And so, the sword in this battle is equivalent to what Ephesians 6 tells us is the sword of the Spirit. And then, Paul explains that sword of the Spirit as the Word of God in your hand, And then he goes on to explain how how the truth of God teaches you from his word, and it moves you to fight against your own sin. And truthfully, this this Old Testament pattern is entirely consistent with what the New Testament says about your own growth in grace, about discipleship. The Lord summons you to a spirit-empowered effort. God saved you. Yes. God is going to sanctify you. Yes. Yes. But you must actively cooperate in doing battle with the pursuit of the flesh. There's tons of New Testament verses. Here's three. Romans 8:13. "By the spirit we must put to death the deeds of the flesh." Ephesians 4 tells us to put off the old self and put on the new self." Colossians 3 says, "Since you've been raised with Christ, put to death what's earthly in you." Oh, sure. The process of of growth sometimes involves an actual fight, striving on your part. Because God uses actual means in the hands of his own people to win these battles. Down on the ground level, there's a sword. Up on the hill, there's a staff. And what does this staff represent? Of course, you know already it's a symbol of God's power and his judgment against his enemies. But it's also a, a token of sorts, isn't it? It's a token of of God's promises to his people. So 80-year-old Moses says, Joshua, you go down and take the fight to the enemy, and I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to cry out to the Lord for help. Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. One on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. I mean, a lot of commentators, if you study this particular passage, will say, oh, yeah, that's clearly a, a picture of, of, of prayer. I don't know if it is. I do think that's one possible way to apply it. So the conclusion that a lot of people make is that it, it is your job as a Christian to fight like Joshua and then to pray like Moses. It seems to me that there is more going on on that hill than just prayer. Moses holding up his hands to heaven is a way to acknowledge that the that the power and the victory that's going to have to happen down here is only possible because God would be the one that would give it and the text proves that. When there is nothing but human effort the battle is lost. But when hands reach up towards the throne of God to say, Lord, we cannot win unless you bring victory. The whole fight tips, doesn't it, in the favor of God's weary children. I wonder if you see the comparison spiritually. To strive against your flesh, armed only with human strength, is to lose the battle. And I think most of us know what it feels like to be crushed and disappointed by your own failures. And because most of us avoid activities that accentuate our weaknesses, you probably also know what it feels like to cave, to give in to the temptation, to give up, to stop fighting against sin, or just to grow so numb with failure that you go, it's just not worth trying, maybe I guess the Lord will eventually get me there your weakness, your striving, your failing, your lack of perfection. Friends, that's not the greatest indicator of how the battle will in the end turn out. Your weakness is the place to start. There is no victory in any battle against sin or against your flesh unless you will really raise your hands to heaven Humbly acknowledge that God alone is the one who must win the battle. And so, friends, when you stumble and you trip along the way, would you own it instead for what it really is? It's proof of your weakness, proof of your need for the Lord's power. Hold your sword in one hand and cry out reaching to the Father in heaven who alone sits on the throne. Victory in spiritual battles comes not in human strength, but through the power of God. The context, the comparisons, we're going to close with the cross. Moses' hands raised to heaven are, in some sense, like your own, aren't they? Reaching up, crying out to God for help. But I think there's also other lessons which are here in the text which are useful for the church. And one is that Moses does not stand upon the hill alone. He needs others who are around him to help hold him up when he's weak and we all get weak, you face intense spiritual battles, and there are people around you who have no idea. People down the row from you are facing real intense, true spiritual battles, and you may have no idea. Your battles, which often look physical or emotional, they're really spiritual. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. He says that in Ephesians 6. I want to give you two applications real quickly. Number one, do you think like Aaron and her? Are you one who is, who is watching for others in your church or in your family who may in fact themselves be fainting? And then are you willing to come alongside of them and, and help hold them up in their moments of, of weakness? Are you actively looking for opportunities to look beyond yourself, to think of the the needs of others? Because you may not always be the only one in need. Secondly, are you willing to ask for help when you are the one who is fainting? Integrity within the church demands the kind of humility that acknowledges, I really do have need. I really am weak. I wonder if you could be one who could acknowledge weakness and need. And I mean that not just in, in principle. Sure, I'm weak. Sure, I have needs. But in actual practice, hey, friend, would you pray for me? I wonder if I could invite you into what's going on in my life. Would you be willing to move in that direction? And then I wonder if it's pride that keeps you from being able to do that. If you recognize the scene, Moses is on this hill functioning like a mediator. Don't you think it was discouraging to those men who are down fighting in the battle to look up and notice that Moses is almost fainting himself? There's a battle going on, and and even our mediator Moses is exhausted, and then the battle gets intense, and they look up on the hill and they're getting discouraged. Here's a profound comfort. This side of the cross, you and I live under a much better mediator. For many of you, there is a battle going on in here or in here. And though you feel weak, and though you feel that the battle is is lost, and you are growing weary, Jesus Himself never grows weary and He never faints. And so there he is in heavenly places in perfect righteousness and he constantly holds forth his hands to the Father and he pleads on your behalf. No one has to prop up the arms of Jesus. He always lives to intercede for you. That's what Hebrews 7.25 says. Oh, sure, please, but let's be honest. You are in the midst of very real spiritual battles in your own life. But there are better arms than yours. And there are better arms than Moses, which are reaching toward heaven and pleading for victory. And those arms belong to the Christ. Verse 14. God says, I want you to write this down. I want you to make sure that you remember this in coming years. I'm going to take care of Amalek. Let's be really clear. He's making a point. I'm going to take care of not only Amalek. Y'all are going to continue to do battle with this evil. I'm also going to take care of evil in general. But it's what Moses does in response that tells us the interpretation of how we should understand this text. Verse 15. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord is my banner. And that is a military term. When you and I think of a banner, we think about a flag or we think about a little pennant. In this case, it's probably more like a pole or a scepter. And that pole stands in the midst of battle. And God says, there will be more battles And you know this, the same is true for for you and me. This side of the cross, we have been saved, but we are not yet in the promised land. But God says, here and now, I'm teaching you one of my names that I have not yet told you. I have not yet explained before. I am Yahweh Nisi. I am the Lord, your banner. I am a tall scepter in the midst of your battle. The banner is where you direct your eyes in the fight. God says, I want you to look at me as your source of identity and security, which is why New Testament scholars have accurately recognized that Yahweh Nisi is most fully revealed in Jesus on the cross. For the Christian, what greater banner do you possess? The cross becomes your identity. The cross is the greatest evidence of your sin and your need for a Savior who would suffer for those sins. Christian, do not be so foolish as to seek a counterfeit identity. The the, the cross is your new banner. And so your identity is not human strength, as if you would cling to the idea of being a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl or, or, or as one who has very little need. You see, if you would rather look for your identity in some delusional notion of self sufficiency, then you will certainly implode in self righteousness. And God knows that. Do not be surprised when you fail. God has no interest in your self righteousness. He wants your eyes looking at the cross in humble need. The cross is your banner. It is your identity. And so we join with the Apostle Paul and say, I'll happily boast in the cross because it's all I've got. The cross is your source of identity. It's also the source of your security. And here's where we close. Every stop on this wilderness journey, if you've noticed it, keeps teaching us the exact same lesson. God says, you can trust me. And so, yes, they did a battle at ground level. They really did fight. And you are doing battle. In your Christian life right now, you really are fighting. But God's point in teaching them His name, Yahweh Nisi, is really to secure them. To say, I'll I'll take care of every outcome in every battle that you face. And isn't that the message of the cross? That's why the cross is such an encouraging place of security. As you wage war against your sin and your flesh, when you watch one moment of victory followed by many moments of failure, when you pause and you realize that your efforts with the sword really do look more like an illustration of of weakness, well, there you can say, praise God. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my security. The Lord is my righteousness. The Lord is my only hope. And that's the message of this text. Victory in battle comes, not in human strength, but through the power of God, all of which is beautifully illustrated for us in the Lord's table, which we will partake of in a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bind this truth to the hearts of your people. And those who have not ever heard before, would you give them ears to hear? Father, we ask that you administer the mercy of Christ to us so that we might know you as you have revealed yourself, a God who offers grace to sinners who will come and enjoy him. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to stand together now and sing.